We are going to be continuing our series titled The Servant King, and our scripture reading today is Mark 10, 32 through 52, so follow along. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you, be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Nate, serve as a staff pastor here. It's just good to be with you. Uh, just a couple, oh, first, first note, um, many of you know uh, that the last couple weeks we dealt with an unexpected health emergency in our family. Uh, our daughter, Grace, was admitted to the hospital a couple weeks ago and stayed there for about a week. And... Um, just want to um, just want to say thank you um, to the Redeemer City family. Um, the the text, the phone calls, um, gift cards, Venmo, the shoveling of our driveway. Um, just so grateful for this family, and uh, particularly um, just the the prayers. Um, sometimes, even as a pastor. When we talk about praying for others, um, it can feel like a throwaway for me. It's kind of like the smallest thing to do. Um, but I can just tell you uh, personally um, that I, it may seem odd to say this, but I felt them. 
and so grateful for that. <clears throat> all right, I got through that, all right? Um, I love you guys. Let me, um, let me pray, and we'll, we'll get in. Father, we are like blind Bartimaeus in this passage physically. Uh, we do not see your son Jesus oftentimes for who he really is. And we ask you this morning for your healing touch. Uh, give us eyes to see Jesus afresh this morning. And maybe it's the first time, maybe it's the thousandth time, but give us eyes to see him, the one who has come not to be served, but to serve. And may that shape us as a people. Amen. Well, on May 7th, 2021, uh, Colonial Pipeline, America's largest pipeline of refined products, went offline. Uh, this company uh, transports 100 million gallons of fuel daily. And it was so significant that it actually jumped the price of gasoline to $3, which, right, that's where we're at right now, but you know what I mean. Like, it changed everything. And the reason it went offline was because it got hacked. It's interesting. Um, I don't know what it is about hacking groups, but they have like the coolest names. I mean, this group was called Dark Side. I mean, come on. That's just, I don't know. They put in ransomware. And in order for Colonial Pipeline to be set free, uh, they paid $4.4 million. As we continue our series in the Servant King, in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus now for the third time today talk about how he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. Remember, we've talked about this confounding identity that he's the Son of Man, he really is the King, the Christ, this long way King to come, and yet he's also come to suffer, and this is confounding. How do these things put together? We'll hear for the first time in Mark we get a word that tells us the meaning of his suffering. In verse 45, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom. Here's what that means. Jesus has come to set you and I free. That's what that means. Jesus has come to set you and I free. Well, if we understand what that means, we've got some work to do. So three things this morning. Firstly, the need for freedom. Secondly, the price of our freedom. And then thirdly, the pattern embedded in that freedom. So let's begin with the need for freedom. So as our text opens, uh, James and John come up to Jesus, and like many of us in our prayer life, they say this, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, they're just unashamed, unabashed, just call it out. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Isn't it remarkable? What do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, this is what they want. And they request to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John want prestige. They want status. They want power. And it's not just James and John. Later on in the passage, the other ten find out about James and John asking this, and they get indignant. They get offended. Why? Because they want it. You know, at first glance, when you read through this, uh, you can kind of have this, this cynicism or this moment like, these are the twelve that have left all to follow Jesus. These are the twelve that are going to be the future leaders, and they're this power-hungry? Well, before we are so maybe cast stones at them, let's be honest for a moment. Their request for power, for status, for greatness, uh, our hearts are not immune to that either. Our lives are not immune to that either. Um, You know, a, a number of years ago, I was counseling a woman who opened up that because of some past wounds as a teenager, she had really built and designed her whole life on just proving that she was worthy. And, and she had done this primarily just through the talent of building a profitable business. And she'd done rather well. And the problem was, it was never enough. You know, it's like it got bigger and then the next mountain and then the next mountain. And not only that, she had lived this way for so long, she was exhausted, just tired, chasing after this dream. And not only that, as she began to pursue all of this, her pursuit for success, her, her pursuit for status, it led to causing most of the most important relationships in her life to break down. It was, it, was, it was affecting her marriage. It was affecting the relationship with her children. And friends, we're not so different. We're not so different. How about, how about this for a moment? Ask this question. How would you answer this question? If I had blank, then I would be somebody. Or maybe just for a moment, even say, because I have blank, then I am somebody. You know, it it could be a GPA, it could be credentials, it could be muscles, it's clearly not mine, (laughs) it could be a certain number of followers on your social media feed, it could be a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse. I mean, even to talk for a moment, just culturally, I mean, even the roots of racism are all found here, of being better than others based on a race. It's it's all right here. Or maybe think about this way, who in your life do you get indignant with or you get offended by? Who do you compare yourself to? What do they have that you don't have? You see, if we're honest, we're, we're just like the disciples. 
this cancer of selfish ambition and self-promotion and self-expression are writ large in our lives. And here's what's key. Jesus uses the word ransom, and that word suggests something about our condition. It means we're not free. That's what it means. It means there is something that has taken us captive. It means something that, something that we are serving. James K. Smith puts it this way, uh, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, you are caught in an endless cycle where you are more disappointed and more dependent on those things. And he goes on to say, by the end, like an addict, you actually forfeit, forfeit the ability to choose. Whatever you serve, it has you now. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 gets at the very heart of what's at the problem here. He says this in Romans 1.25, that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And do you see for a moment this, this exchange that it talks about, that where God ought to be at the center of our lives, each one of us has put something in creation or ourself at the center. This is, this is what sin is. This is biblically what sin is. And so think about this for a moment. You and I, we were designed to have God at the center. That's, that's how we were made, created. But what's happened is each of us are infected with sin, and we put self at the center. And so here's the point of what Paul is saying, of what James K.A. Smith is saying. They're saying this, you're not free. When Jesus says the word ransom, Bob Dylan put it this way, you've got to serve somebody. None of us are free. You and I need deliverance. So that's our need for freedom. Do you, do you understand that? Do you see that? Secondly, but the price. The word ransom literally means a price paid to release someone or something from bondage. It had its, it had its roots in the marketplace. You go back to the Old Testament related to a bondservant or an animal. And when Jesus says he's going to give his life as a ransom for many, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer on the cross, and that means this, on the cross he is going to pay a price to release us. Now, some of us, this may sound strange, uh, it may sound odd, why, how does his life, his death do that for us? Well, in verse 39, there's this language Jesus used of a cup. In the Old Testament, the cup is frequently used to speak about God's wrath and his judgment on the evil in this world. And so, it means this, that on the cross, Jesus is going to take the judgment and the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That is how he comes to serve us. What's interesting, so James and John are the ones that asked this. Later on, John in his epistle, later on he writes a letter to a church and describes about the, the work of Jesus on the cross. And listen to what he says in 1 John 2, 2. He says, he, speaking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
That word propitiation, which I understand is, you know, it's like, what? That's a crazy word. We don't ever use that. It literally means to satisfy or exhaust the wrath of God. Now, we need to pause here for a moment because I know for some of us, we hear judgment, we hear wrath, and we think, haven't we gotten past that? Kind of, haven't we kind of moved past an angry deity? Uh, Jeff White, a pastor, is really helpful. He, he points us to Mirzlav Volf. And Mirzlav Volf is a theology professor at Yale, and Volf is a Croatian. And so he lived through the ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia. 200,000 were, were killed, 3 million displaced. And he's writing about wrestling with a God of wrath and a God of love. And listen to what he says. He says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? But then Wolf, he begins to reflect on what he's experienced in his life. He reflects on the carnage in his own country. He thinks about Rwanda and other heinous crimes that have happened. And here's what he writes. He says this, Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against the God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And do you see what both is saying? It's because God is good. It's because God is loving that he actually does get angry at the evil in the world. I mean, think for a moment, the last couple of weeks, and we could talk about a number of things that have happened, but think about the brutal beating and murder of Tyree Nichols. Listen, if, you're, if you don't get angry about something like that, then do you not love what is good? And Volf is saying, if God isn't wrathful, then I couldn't worship him. It's not that God's anger just flies off the cuff, but it's because he's good that he must be opposed to it. And, and Wolf goes on to say that, he, you know, if, listen, if, if God's condemnation of wrongdoing, if it's against clearly heinous crimes, but it can't just be only against heinous crimes. In other words, an offense is an offense. And so, just for a moment, consider this. The meaning of Jesus' suffering, the meaning of the cross is right here. Jesus comes to pay a price to release you from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and one day sin's presence. And friends, that is humbling. Right? Because it means that we have to own that. But it's also astounding. Because consider the price. Um, you know, it's February. Um, I feel like we should all be watching the movie Groundhog's Day. I mean, it's February, Groundhog's Day. If you haven't seen it, it's a classic. Bill Murray plays Phil Connors, a weatherman who unfortunately wakes up every morning with it being Groundhog's Day, and he's stuck in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. 
And um, it's, anyway, there's a lot to it. But there's a, there's a scene at the end where they have a bachelor's auction in this great hall and the whole town's there. And Phil has actually become, from a cynical person, he's become actually very kind and very generous. And he gets up front to be a part of this bachelor's auction and, you know, the first bid comes in, $5, you know, and the next 10 50 And all of a sudden, Rita, who's the kind of workplace associate who he really likes, who he adores, she has a checkbook, which, you know, that dates the movie, right? <laughs> Not getting out her Venmo, getting out the checkbook. And she goes, $339.88. It's clear that's what she has in her checkbook. She is spending everything to get him. In 1 Peter 1, speaking about the ransom price, listen to what Peter writes. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. That's the price. You know, there's a scene in the BBC show Sherlock where Sherlock Holmes' uh, associate Watson and close friend Watson, he's married, and they've kind of solved the crime. They've, they've gotten to the point where the person's exposed, and the friend uh, pulls out a gun, and he aims it at Sherlock and fires, and Watson's wife jumps in front and takes the bullet, and she dies. And Sherlock, you could just, I mean, you know, he's always a little bit like mentally off, right? He's just, you know, but he's, he's so struck by what's happened. And, he, and he, he makes this comment, he says, in saving my life, she convert, conferred a value on it. Do you hear that? Do you understand how the gospel, on the one hand, it humbles you, right? Because you have to own it. You have to understand, you're not free from your sin unless you're in Him. But it, on the other side of it it, it, it lifts you to the skies because you understand if Jesus took it all, if He laid down His life, then He has conferred a value on you. This is... This is the heart of Christianity, Jesus voluntarily, out of compassion and love, laying down his life as a ransom to substitute himself to bear the wrath that you and I deserved and to exhaust it in and of himself to serve you. So we've seen our need to be freed. We've seen the price of our freedom. But lastly, the pattern embedded in that freedom. You know, when we consider, you know, even the concept of freedom in our present cultural moment, it really is basically this, to be freed from all constraints. Any traditions or things outside of us, you decide, you be you, Jesus is very different. 
Jesus is not so much freedom from, it's freedom from sin, but it's also freed for something. Freed for something. And Jesus gets that in 42 through 44. He says this, And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says, if you've been freed, if you've been freed from sin, then what happens is you're no longer controlled by selfish ambition or self-promotion or self-expression because in one way or another, if you have him, you have it all. Why are you clamoring for these things? Why do we go after these things if we have him? Rather, it frees us to live a life of self-abdication, of self-renunciation in his name, or to put it another way, it means it frees us to spend our lives, to empty our lives into the needs of those around us, sacrificially in the name of Jesus. You've been served by Jesus, and you follow him in service and love sacrificially to others. And let's consider four things about what that looks like. The first is motivationally. Um, there is, you know, let's put it this way, serving others in our culture is common. It's not like, I mean, it's actually a high value, and I'm grateful for that. It has its roots in Christianity, but it, I'm really grateful for that. Um, but can I submit something to you? Um, that at the heart of this, there's a problem. Because oftentimes, and I don't know other people's hearts, I only know my own heart, but I'll say this, it's cloaked in self-interest and oftentimes manipulation. You know, for, for example, this is maybe picking on, you know, but like, think of like the YouTuber, right, that helps the poor, you know, and broadcasts it. Well, there's self-interest there, right? You get more likes. Um, you know, there, there's studies that have been done that talk about how actually if you live this way, <clears throat> it actually creates a better life. There's secular studies out there that demonstrate this. But think about that. If you choose that way, you're just serving yourself to have a good life. There's this catch-22. The gospel's different, and here's how. So there's, um, in the show The Good Place, um, it's, it's a show about the afterlife with four people that go there trying to end up in the good place. And there's a point in the show where they're trying to earn enough points to make it in. And Eleanor is this, she knows she's just this horrible person. I mean, when she lived on, on earth, she just knew she was corrupt and lied and all these things. But she's shown that the average where they're living right now, which is something like the good place, the average person has 1.2 million good points. And she is at negative 4,008. <laughs> And she's trying to catch up. And so Tahani, her friend, is um, giving her some things she could do. So like, she said, Eleanor, go open the door for people. And they throw a party, like get, help people laugh, enjoy themselves, throw a party. And, and, and it's funny, there's like these, it's like a ticker comes up and she begins to recognize that there's nothing being added each time. And then she realizes it. 
she realizes the reason is, is because her frantic efforts are solely motivated by self-interest. It's to earn enough to get there. But don't you understand how the gospel is so different? Jesus already paid the price in full. The price of relief is paid. There's no condemnation. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can add to the ticker. Which means you can freely serve out of gratitude to him. To please him. It really is only in the gospel where that's actually possible. But then secondly, Jeff White makes this point that it means we serve others indiscriminately. You know, in the year 251 AD, there was a plague that ravaged the whole Roman Empire. In the city of Carthage, it thinned the streets, spread from house to house. Um, Bodies of dead and dying people were just thrown out. Um, Even their nearest relatives, people were chucking out so they could be saved. And Cyprian, the bishop at the time in that town, gathered the Christians. And the Christians, by the way, they had oftentimes in this town been persecuted, not been welcomed for a variety of different ways. And Cyprian gathered the Christians and called them to not only show acts of kindness to their own brothers and sisters, but called them to show it to those who had actually been their enemies. The city was divided into districts, and they gave their lives for those who, who, who despised them. Why did they do that? Because Jesus, who does he give his life for? Listen, right, this is the gospel. The gospel is not that Christ gives his life for those who deserve it. Christ gives his life for his enemies. And if that's at the center of your life, then that enables you to actually serve those who do not agree with you politically, who do not share the same beliefs. It, do you understand? Freely, indiscriminately, it's all rooted in the gospel. But thirdly, holistically, you know, in verse 45, Jesus doesn't talk about himself as like he has one task to do. In Philippians 2, it says that he talks about emptying himself of his roles and status and privilege and actually becoming one of us and becoming a servant. It means it's his vocation. It's who he is. It's his identity. And that means that ought to change those who follow him, that it is now our identity. It's who we are. In other words, you know, it's like you can sign up for a couple hours to serve, and that is wonderful, and that is good, and you, you should do that, right? We should do that. But it means this is actually our vocation. This carries over into the rest of our life. It means when you show up at work on Monday, your vocation is one of service in the name of Jesus at the place you work. It means, you know, if if you're a spouse that works and you're gone all day and you come home and your spouse has been with the kids all day, it means you don't show up and you think, hey, how are you going to serve me? I'm exhausted. But you show up and you say, how do I serve you? 
Like, do you see how this just changes things? Or think about if you're like, I think about if you're like junior high, high school. Think about how hard relationships are in those days. Um, just figuring out who you are and where you fit. There's all this awkwardness. It's not easy. And oftentimes, right, what happens is with our words, we just cut people down. We don't think about how to build others up. Because, remember, we're still trying to go after the status, the privilege. But don't you understand, if you have Jesus, you've got friendship with the king of the world who loves you, which means you're actually free, free to speak well of those around you, to encourage those around you. Do you see how that changes community? All right, lastly, sacrificially. Um, Jesus gave his life. <laughs> it's kind of a hard, uh, high bar, right? He gave, his, he gave his life. His service was costly. Listen, following Jesus is going to cost you. Um, put it this way, how is it changing or how ought it change your budget? What ways are you spending yourself financially for the benefit of others? for their spiritual needs, physical needs, emotional needs? Or how about this? Some of you, like writing a check is nothing. Like that doesn't cost you very much. But some of you, time, that's a lot. You've got minimal time. And, and therefore, it means this. As you begin to follow him, it means there might be people you know who need a listening ear, who need your time, who need your attention. And it means you give up in order to serve. And do you realize when Jesus says, the last will be first, this is the path, do you understand? There is nothing mundane. There is nothing mundane about life. Everything matters. Everything does. Friends, Jesus has come to set you and I free. This morning, if you don't know him, it, it, it's not a performance to, to get in with him. It's just to receive it, to trust it by faith. He has come to serve you. He will not reject you. It's to rest and rely on what he's done for you. And if you're in him, if you know him, that it means to follow him in serving with a motivation that's motivated by the gospel, not self-interest. He's come to serve you. It helps you serve indiscriminately, even those who don't like you. It helps you to serve holistically, that your whole entire life is integrated in one sacrificial service to him for his glory and to others for their good. And then lastly, it means sacrificially. As you look out, let me ask you with one thing. Who this week needs your service? Who needs your help? Look to the one who has given his life for you and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have come to serve us through your son Jesus. 
Um, Lord, I, we know it is incredibly hard to take this from the page and to work it out in our lives. But we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to do this, that we would be a community that would grow in being a servant, not to earn your love, but in response to the one who has come, and that others may come and see how we live and what we speak of, and they, they, that they would come to see you, Jesus, the one who is at the center of it all, who gave up everything to come and serve us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.